Hey, what's up, psychos? Welcome to the first ever episode of The Crazy Pill, where we swallow insanity in order to puke out propaganda, a trademark. Yeah, this is the uh, companion podcast to Take Your Pills, Psychopath. As you guys know, Take Your Pills Psychopath is all about all of us working together to cultivate tools to maintain our mental health, to destigmatize mental illness. Super important, especially in this crazy ass time. Uh, yeah, so the crazy pill is all about getting informed about what's really going on politically. Pushing through all the propaganda of the corporate mainstream media, which, in my opinion, extends from Fox News all the way through NPR. What? I don't know if any of y'all checked out my most recent newsletter at jfodnews.com, which y'all should uh, join. Because I did an entire deep dive segment, I worked really hard on it, called How to Escape Your Corporate Propaganda Echo Chamber Rusty Cage and Run, where I laid out what our government really is, how it's legal to propagandize us domestically, what we can do to push back by calling out the corporate media who has to be in the public square via social media. And then I listed a whole bunch of non-corporate outlets, uh, media news outlets across the left-right divide for folks because it's just important to me to not allow my friends... Uh, and everybody to be manipulated this way and that by uh, each consecutive news cycle as they like to do to us. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'll i be honest, I'm sitting on a few podcast episodes. I have not been releasing as consistently as I would like. I think it's because I've been, I don't know, I've been preoccupied and somewhat overwhelmed with uh, everything that's going on in the world um, because I'm starting to see things in a pretty, uh, you know, I don't know, a pretty kind of wild, pretty messed up uh, light. And I've just, there's some folks that see it like this. There's others that don't. um, And it's hard to, uh, it's hard to sort of, I don't know. Um, my friend Dina Hashem, who's a uh, great comedian uh, and has become a good pal during this pandemic, <clears throat> um, she said that for some of us, it's hard for us to imagine, have the imagination to realize how twisted and messed up super powerful people can be uh, in this world. And that I think makes it hard for us to push through the cognitive dissonance uh, to be like, wait, this can't possibly be real because from our perspective, we would never act like that. We would never be so power hungry and arrogant and egotistical and megalomaniacal to the point where we would want to you know, implement such a, such a system of control on people. So I'm not going to go 
to deep dive into it because I don't want to alienate folks and I'm still open-minded about a lot of things. Uh, but I am thoroughly convinced that this uh, pandemic, that uh, COVID-19 coronavirus is being exploited at every turn by, uh, by governments, uh, by big corporations, which are, uh, you know, in my opinion, intertwined in so many ways. They are using this pandemic as a way to usher in authoritarian control to take away so many of our freedoms and to essentially just scare the shit out of us every day by overplaying something that is already serious, which is just so criminal, in my opinion. And when people are all stressed out and scared shitless, uh, that makes our cortisol levels go up. It makes our immune systems go down, which is not what you want in this time. Uh, and it allows us to be manipulated. When we are scared, we are compliant. So that's allowing for all, all, all sorts of, uh, of systems of control to come into place, into taking away all sorts of civil liberties. And it does not look like all of that stuff is going to go away when, you know, this pandemic is over. Uh, and I'm convinced that if the media wanted to, they could just tomorrow tell us there's a second wave. We would all just be scared. Further lockdown would happen. Um, you know, and there's scary stuff in the works in terms of this contact tracing thing and contact tracing apps, all of that stuff, which is meant to, you know, stop the spread and things like that, but actually can just be used as an absurd system of control you get an alert on your phone that you were uh within contact of somebody who tested positive now you have to quarantine yourself for 14 days sure it very well may be voluntary but the social pressure to do so is going to be quite overwhelming and also just the the pressure of oh wow i'm a decent person i don't want to spread this to anybody i'm around people who are immunocompromised so i don't want to risk that sort of thing so it's an entire entire system of control while meanwhile these big 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 businesses get to stay open while so many independent businesses in our country, and this is happening around the world, have to close further, further concentration of wealth to these uh, corporate entities. They don't give a fuck about us. So this sort of stuff has been somewhat overwhelming for me uh, because I'm, I'm seeing this in a kind of a more bird's eye view of what's happening. So it's actually done something that I would hope that it would and it's something that I've talked about on Take Your Pill Psychopath that I was hoping, you know, uh, would would not happen and I've been better with dealing with in the past, which has been to kind of focus, focus on the work, focus on what I know is helpful, which is communicating uh, with folks about mental health issues, you know? Focusing on what I can control and not getting lost in the weeds of what I can't. Uh, that being said, I think it's incredibly important for us to be aware of this stuff. I think it's incredibly important to understand what's going on and to speak out against that. I mean, I mean, not a lot of people know this, but 
uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who I think is uh, is I think that his heart is in the right place, and I think he gives a fuck. He was very recently, he was just in Berlin, where there's been massive protests in Berlin um, that have been that have been floated and characterized in the media as being just like, you know, right wing freaks like neo Nazis and, you know, conspiracy theorists and anti vaxxers and da 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 and, you know, uh, corona deniers and all that sort of stuff in order to dismiss it and not actually hear what's going on. But we're talking about large, large, large amounts of people uh, in Berlin, something like at least half a million people standing up uh, to be like, hey, wait a second. We know there's risks to coronavirus. However, the draconian lockdowns that are happening, the systems of control that are being used are bullshit. Uh, we want some agency here. You know, also, we're wary of Bill Gates and the World Economic Forum and this great reset agenda that they have. We're wary about transition to complete digital currency that can be sort of shut off at any time we're we're just we're wary of authoritarianism being brought in globally due to coronavirus and robert f kennedy jr was speaking and basically saying all of this and more in front of a massive audience and he even opened up saying the way the news is going to uh, announce this tomorrow is that I am speaking to three to five thousand Nazis in Berlin, and he's like, "This is the opposite of that." He's, I see people here who want open government, who want government officials who don't lie to us, who want, uh, you know, health safety systems in place. Uh, and he said, "You know, this is the opposite of Nazism," and it's a pretty powerful speech. Um, you know, I'll link to it in the description, but it's the sort of thing where right now, if you're listening and you have no frame of reference for any of the stuff that I'm talking about, it might sound like I'm completely fucking insane. Um, you know, that I'm conspiratorial, that I'm, you know, just off the rails. And I hope that's not the case. And also, you know, I'm open-minded if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm leaning too much into this stuff, reading too much into things, I'm more than happy to have that discussion. But I've also, I've realized that, okay, in addition to the mental health stuff, because of how long I've worked, uh, you know, working on Redacted Tonight in political satire, because I, you know, had to research my own stories for five years uh, and write all of the scripts and perform them because we've Redacted has always had such a skeleton crew where that's actually the job of three people on other political satire shows. But, you know, in addition to my knowledge base on this stuff, uh, which I'm, I never fault anybody for not having it per se because people have difficult lives that they have to, you know, you have to work, you have to raise your family if, if that's your situation, and you don't have time to deep dive and push through all of this propagandistic nonsense that you're getting pushed out at constantly. It's almost like a Herculean task to push through all of this stuff. So here's the deal. I have that knowledge base, and I'm still I'm always open-minded and learning. Plus, I'm very grateful that I have friendships with and access to professional, awesome, independent journalists 
who absolutely, uh, their heart's in the right place, they're doing it for the right reasons, and they're just brilliant minds, and they're covering this stuff that allows us to push through and not get manipulated. Because the thing is this, the only way that a country, uh, a populace can be controlled like the way we are controlled is if we're scared, which uh, is very, very much the case right now because of the uh, exploitation of coronavirus. And secondly, is if we do not have a political and historical reference and understanding of what's going on. That allows us to be manipulated by the propagandistic mouthpiece of the corporate state, which is the corporate media. And if we don't have a frame of reference, they can absolutely turn half the country against the other half, which is what they fucking do every day. You know, if you follow any of these outlets, which I really recommend that you don't, and if you go to jfodnews.com, uh, you can see a number of outlets for a healthier, uh, you know, news media diet. Um, but if you do, just understand that they're pushing an agenda. So you should just watch them from the perspective of being like, oh, I want to just see what perspective, what agenda they're pushing out. Not that I'm going to get real fucking news from any of them because you're not. Uh, but what they do is, and you might notice this, is across the left-right divide, any news outlets, TV or print, that, um, or web, you know, print, um, any of those that, uh, that are, let's say, considered on the left, you know, or, and then all, any that are considered on the right, they always talk about the same stories, okay? And notice that they push out, by design, highly antagonistic narratives about the same stories. So the folks that are listening to those echo chambers, that particular uh, version of the story, they get manipulated, we get manipulated to find the other version incredibly morally reprehensible and thus we slide that moral reprehension onto and project it onto half the fucking country. And they're very good at it. <clears throat> they know how to manipulate us. They know how to pull at our heartstrings. And they do it every fucking day. And we fall for it because we don't have the frame of reference. So that's what the crazy pill is about. It's providing that. And I know some people are like, oh, I'm not into politics or whatever understandable um you know but we do need to know this shit so we can't get manipulated um that's just i think it's important i think it's worthwhile and uh oh i'll just say so the show's called the crazy pill initially i was going to call it uh the black pill because the black pill is a term where it's like, okay, if you swallow the black pill, you're starting to like believe the most like fucked up sort of version of a thing. You know what I mean? Which sometimes may be true, but it's like, oh shit, you swallowed the black pill, right? So I thought that was kind of a cool name for a podcast. However, I didn't realize, uh, and I was told by multiple friends, that that term, the black pill, has been co-opted or is used by... Uh, the incel community, <laughs> which is the uh, involuntary celibate community, which are uh, men who are very upset that they can't hook up with women, like nobody wants to have sex with them, so they have a very 
sort of like um, maladjusted misogynistic take on women and it's the sort of thing when they say when they take the black pill they realize that there's like a a matriarchal force out there that like hates men and is like subjugating them or something like that i don't know but what i do know is i don't want to be associated with that world uh so yeah so it's not called the black pill but you'll notice on this first episode with the brilliant brilliant journalist uh, Sam Sachs, which I'm going to tell you more about him in a minute. I do say, Sam, you're the first guest on the black pill because when I recorded this, which was actually uh, I got actually a few months ago, so I'm behind on this one because I'm trying to figure out how to launch it or whatever. Uh, I go, you know, you're the first guest on the black pill, and I've changed it since. So I uh, just wanted to let you know about that. Also wanted to let you know that initially this was my plan, right? Because obviously take your pill psychopath you know everybody can listen to that for free my youtube videos that i upload y'all can check that out i'm probably going to start doing youtube live streams um and also my newsletter all that stuff is is free so my my plan was with this second podcast i was going to have this be you know part of the paid subscriber version this was going to be like the behind the paywall thing it's like okay the additional podcast you get you know if you can afford to throw me you know, a few bones a month so I can keep doing this, um, you know, because there's no like live shows. I don't really have any income right now. And by that, I mean, I have no income right now. <laughs> but uh, uh, but I realized I was like, wait a second, these journalists and this stuff that I get to discuss with them, it's too relevant. It's too uh, worthwhile for people to know about, you know, like, for example, in this first episode uh with Sam Sachs, uh, we cover what's really going on with the United States Post Office and how, you know, it's being used as a political chip right now, but there's been bipartisan uh, defunding of it and all sorts of stuff for years and years and years and how now it's just being used as this kind of like political football. Uh, but it's really, really, under- it's really, really worthwhile to understand that stuff. Um, you know, we also talk about in the episode the bad faith bailouts that have happened uh, for all of these big, big businesses and how much of a further upward redistribution of wealth has happened to the rich uh, even more so and more quickly than the 2008-2009 bailouts during the Great Recession after the sub-mortgage, subprime mortgage housing crisis, all that stuff. So this is really, really troubling shit. And it's also it's the sort of thing where it's like they would not be able to pull off this thievery if we weren't just so scared and so distracted by what's going on by design in our country to make us be that way. Um, so basically what I'm saying is I'm offering all of these the second podcast as these come out, this is also going to be free and available for everybody. So you'll see now at some point on my newsletter, there'll be the option to do the, uh, the paid subscriber thing. I'm going to do just one tier, $7 a month uh, price point. So that what I, when that happens, I ask if you can support it, you support it, but I'm just going to give away the content for free. So, uh, so we'll see what happens. Maybe I'll figure out another, add-on thing but i don't know it just the stuff is too uh too important to get out there like i got to interview for the second episode of of the 
of the crazy pill. Also, I think the crazy pill is just a better name because it's kind of more broad where it's like, okay, it can be about politics. It can also be other crazy stories and things like that. And I kind of like it. Take your pill, psychopath, the crazy pill. You know, we got a whole motif going on here, guys. We got, you know, we're developing a sensibility, right? Um, psychos. So anyway, the second episode of the crazy pill, uh, I got to interview Eleanor Goldfield, a great journalist, dear friend. Um, and she has this amazing documentary that she made about what's been going on with uh, the miners in West Virginia. And also we talk a lot about something that I think is very important and really is the future, uh, which is the mutual aid revolution that is happening across the country, many cities and places where basically groups of people are getting together and they're like, okay, the government's not going to be here for us at the federal level or even at the state local level. Fuck them. Uh, you know, we'll take what we can get from them, but we are going to set up our own structures. We are going to set up our own community where we help each other with the skills that we have. For example, oh, hey, are you food insecure? Okay, uh, you know, we'll be able to uh, provide food for you through funds that we have, through extra food. But, oh, wow, but you have this skill set where you can... You know, you know how to fix things. Oh, wow. You can, you know, you can fix somebody's car. You can do that. So it's the sort of thing where it's not like a hierarchical charity sort of thing. It's like people seeing what skill sets and resources they have and working together uh, to take care of themselves in this difficult, difficult time, which we just don't know if it's going to get uh, any better anytime soon. So that is really deep dive explanation about that. It's so worthwhile to know about. How am I going to put that behind a fucking paywall, right? Uh, then there's a third episode of uh, The Crazy Pill with Anya Parampil, uh, who's an amazing journalist with uh, The Gray Zone, uh, The Gray Zone Project, which you definitely should check out if you want to get great news, especially about foreign policy stuff, but uh, really about everything. Uh, the Gray Zone Project, you know, that's gray with an A, just find that online. They also have a YouTube channel. It's amazing stuff. Uh, these are really, really uh, journalists that I respect a lot. And it's basically the crew of people that I became close friends with and hung out with all the time when I lived in D.C. and worked on Redacted Tonight. So this is a great way for me to stay connected with them uh, and, and myself and Anya. Anya explains all sorts of stuff that's going on uh, in... Uh, Latin America with our policies there about things that are not reported on in the news. So you learn which countries are our allies, which sadly are always right wing, uh, very militaristic, very neoliberal, meaning they allow for multinational corporations to come in and exploit the uh, resources and labor, the people of that country, of those countries. And we have military bases there, etc. And then which countries are trying to fight against it and trying to hold on. And we talk about, uh, you know, we talk about Venezuela. We talk about Bolivia. There was a freaking coup in Bolivia last year, guys. A U.S.-backed right-wing coup because we wanted to get access to all that lithium, okay? It's worthwhile to know about this stuff and, and think, like, hey, how come every time we hear about a foreign policy f uh, story about another country, it's always Russia and China, and it's always how evil those countries are? That's by design because our foreign policy now is that of containment of Russia and China. And in order for our government to contain Russia and China and do whatever they got to do to them in terms of sanctions, in terms of military buildup, in terms of sales of weapons to neighboring uh, 
countries that are our allies, the American populace has to, at the very least, have a bad taste in their mouth about those countries, if not a visceral hate that allows for the slow march towards war, which just ends up hurting regular folks. Same with sanctions. That hurts regular folks. Why do we know more about that than we do about a country that we actively helped overthrow that is closer to where we are geographically? For resources, blatantly, uh, against the best interests, to put it lightly, of the people living in that country. So... This is stuff you can learn about. It's basically like, take your pill psychopath. We're going to talk about mental health issues. I have, uh, you know, that most recent episode with Kareem Green was so, so interesting and insightful. Him talking about his journey through the foster care system, uh, you know, the self-work that he did to cultivate confidence, how creativity and comedy saved him. And, you know, I have another episode in the can I'm working on for the next Take Your Pill Psychopath with Chemda of Chemda Khalili, of Keith and the Girl, uh, one of the pioneers of podcasting, a legendary, legendary podcast, and she is just so delightful, so insightful. She's been through so much difficult, painful shit, you know? We're talking cancer, and while cancer, being cheated on by husband and other shit, so much stuff. Uh, and she's maintained this triumph of the, of the triumph of the human spirit in a way that is just breathtaking. So it's just cool to chat with her. We talk, we get into all that sort of stuff. And you know, I've been going on that podcast for ten years, and it's the first time I ever got you know like a, a fan base of folks that were like, oh wow, John, we really like your comedy, we really like your appearances on this podcast, and it means a lot, you know. And I'll be honest, currently, you know the. K-A-T-G-ers and the Redactivists, which are the Redacted Tonight fans, and any newer folks uh, that have found me through Take Your Pill Psychopath, I, you know, I appreciate all of you so much, but there's also, there's a lot of folks uh, that are just, that are, that I know would dig my work that are just not connected with me right now, and it's okay, you know, I'll find my folks and they'll find me as it happens, but that's a product of me getting sick, you know, that's a product of manic episodes where I've had a, you know, where I've spun out and then, you know, and then following that depressive episodes. And so it's been hard to kind of maintain and build, but I'm trying to do it uh, again. And I want to say that I appreciate your guys support. Obviously, this introduction is um, is longer than than most. But uh, but yeah, but I mean. This is just, these are crazy times, guys, and we really do, we really do need to realize what is going on. Uh, and in my opinion, uh, coronavirus is being used as a uh, pretense to usher in authoritarian rule uh, in an international capacity. Yeah, I know, it's freaky, but guess what? We have so much power if we just realize that we do. And I do think that in order for us to realize that, we have to get, you know, our mental health, our mental illness uh, in as best shape as we can, which is, you know, all of those different tools in our bag that we talk about a lot on Take Your Pills uh, Psychopath. And we also have to be informed about what's really fucking going on. And that's what this podcast is going to do. So I hope that you guys, um, I hope that you guys enjoy it. Uh, Sam Sachs, 
uh, amazing. You know, we talk about this. He's got this great, great, great independent news outlet with his journalistic partner, Sam Knight. It's called the District Sentinel. I suggest that you check that out. Um, you know, uh, that podcast. Uh, and yeah, yeah. And you'll find out, uh, how we know each other. Uh, you know, and he's just, he's a brilliant guy all around. And I feel grateful to have him as the, uh, the first, uh, guest ever on the crazy pill. So without further ado, uh, please enjoy episode one of the crazy pill. Sam, how are you, man? Thank you for coming on. The first episode ever of The Black Pill, dude. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. It is an honor, John. It is good to be able to talk with you. It's been way too long, my friend. I know it has. Dude, I for all you psychos listening at home, like I am cheek-to-cheek smiles right now seeing one of my favorite people who I've not connected with in, yeah, too long, man. I think it's been like at least face-to-face in any sort of even digital face-to-face a couple years, man. <laughs> I know. I know. I see. Uh, we're both just a couple long haired dudes hanging out. <laughs> Times. Yeah. Reminiscing. Yeah. Thinking about yeah, uh, pre pandemic times. Yeah, dude. The pre pan world. And now we're in the pan world. And then eventually we're going to get to that post pan world trademark. I hope, dude. I hope man. I hope so. <laughs> um, for everybody, for everybody listening, uh, you guys, you know, if you're listening right now, that means that you've become a certifiable psycho. That means you've subscribed. That means you're supporting me and I appreciate it. And one of the uh, perks you get is this black pill podcast. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Sam Sachs, incredibly talented dude, great independent investigative journalist, uh, doing his own thing with the district Sentinel and means morning news on means TV. But in addition to that deep cut, an original correspondent on Redacted Tonight with Lee that, Camp. What? That is a deep cut right there. Yeah. Deep, deep he, cut, he, even deeper cut? I came up with the name Redacted Tonight. What? You did? Who do you think? Where, where do you think that name came from? Well, I... Okay, first of all, Redacted Tonight is a very, very cool name for a political comedy show. Absolutely. But... True story. I was always under the impression, okay, we're starting off with some controversy right away. (laughs) (laughs) I was always under the impression, as told to me by Lee, when the show was in in its nation state, really, really cool woman, ended up working for the DCist. Rachel came up with the name. That is half true. We both came up with the name. Rachel and I were sitting in a room, uh, in an office, uh, the meeting room at RT, just going through the alphabet thinking of r's and t's so it would be rt and came up with r the word redacted t tonight and that was the name of the show that's that's where it amazing came, came from i mean it is that's, the that's not that controversial i thought you were going to say something like lee had claimed credit for coming up with the name and then it was going to be some controversy here no well i thought you were just you know you just you just kind of took full credit for something that you had right. like you know <laughs> 
<laughs> I should have done that. Right. You're right. I shouldn't have erased Rachel there. I honestly don't remember who between us actually said the words redacted tonight first. I couldn't tell you. Maybe it was her. I don't know. I, I, I want to think it was me, though. I do sort of think it was me. I like that I set a good tone for this interview, but like you just wanted to bring up like a nice little tidbit of trivia and I immediately undermined your credibility and character, which everybody listening at home, I did not want to do because Sam is a man of the utmost character. He is a, a fearless and brave journalist in this crazy corporatized, messed up, shattered, broken media landscape. Um but before we get into that, because what this podcast is about, you guys, is, you know, take your pill psychopath. That's all about us kind of like, you know, coming clean and talking publicly about our mental health issues to destigmatize it, to feel less alone, to hopefully contribute to our mental wellness. The black pill, you guys, on the other hand, gets into the gnarly underbelly of messed up geopolitical social situations, stories, things are going on that you're not going to fucking hear on the news, man, especially during COVID. So this is going to completely undermine any mental stability that the other podcast may have provided for any of us. And Sam is here to share some of those stories because he knows this shit. And from working side by side with him for, uh, you know, I guess multiple years. He was there for the he was there for the first two years of the show, solidly for the first. Then, as he was getting his own endeavor off the ground, was cool enough to do right by the show and come back and do a number of segments. We called them packages. Actually, Sam, <laughs> the packages that you created, uh, we ended up all the other correspondents had to learn how to do all that. And and I'm grateful that some of the best work I got to do on that show is because I learned that format. And basically, you know, how to do that. So thank you. Well, that, that's that's great to hear. I'm, I'm glad I was able to uh, to lay lay some seeds and, and then watch them grow and flourish. <laughs> well, you did amazing. You did amazing, amazing segments for that show. We're going to revisit a couple of those. But what I'm trying to say is before we get into all of that stuff, uh, you know, Sam, you got to talk about your mental health issues, dude, because from my perspective, in this weird way, you can kind of navigate all of these waters and you're this even keeled dude amongst covering this really gnarly, depressing stuff. And obviously, I've had my epic public spin outs <laughs> of which we will discuss, like that time I brought all those redactivists over to your place. Um, <laughs> I would like to revisit that and hear about that from your perspective. But first, what are what are some things that you're kind of vulnerable about, Sam? Show us some of your vulnerability because, uh, you know, you're pretty good at keeping your uh, your guard up. Well, <clears throat> as they said about um, Joe Stack, the guy who flew his airplane into the IRS building in 2010, uh, he seemed to be very calm and serene on the surface, but like a duck, his legs were moving very wildly just below the surface. I wouldn't quite compare myself to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to come on your show and um, <clears throat> steal mental health valor or anything. I, like, I, I don't know if anybody's <laughs> ever said that sort of phrase. <laughs> I mean, I, I like, I mean, I guess I'm like fairly blessed in that I, I've like, you know, you know, I, 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 I guess one issue is that uh, here we are at a time of um, like. You know, we've got about 100,000 people dying right now of this virus, which is awful. Uh, 
the economy is entering like Great Depression territory. Uh, people can't leave their homes, and uh, most people haven't seen like their families in a long time. And I feel about the same as I felt beforehand. So maybe that's it. Maybe that's where the issues come from. I mean, I feel awful about like the people dying and everything, but like I feel like I've spent the last you know several decades preparing for something like this, assuming the worst about this country and our, our culture, that something like this was inevitable. So I don't know, maybe that's an explanation for it. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a sufficient answer for you. Like I said, uh, <laughs> I don't want to no, I don't want to like, hype anything that might not actually be there. <laughs> honestly, I just want you to be, I just want you to be honest. I just hope that you have like chronic back pain or something, you know? Um, oh, well, I've had that for a while. <laughs> I mean, I, just... look, I mean, uh, I, I, uh, I've moved on to doing dabs. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot how much of a pothead you are. Yeah, We'll have, yeah, to, we'll have uh... to get back to that in a second. But, <laughs> no, I, I wanted to say, though, I think, though, the fact that you obviously, I mean, you're you're a journalist who keeps his finger on the pulse of what's going on and has has done so for many years and is kind of among other things, has spoken out against the the, the corporate media. Um, so it's the sort of thing where it's like, yeah, you're less shocked by something like this happening because you've been sort of screaming yeah. at the, uh, you know, at the uh, from the uh, the rooftops about it for a long time, you know. So yeah. I guess I, more specifically, uh, I do uh, kind of uh, um appreciate having the excuse to not engage in a lot of social events that I didn't want to before also. <laughs> yeah. If I recall, you are much more of like a homebody. Than yeah. I am. Like yeah. there were so many times over the years that I would try to get us to hang out, but the only modality that that hangout was going to happen is if I came over your place to play some sort of like pretentious board game. Yeah, that was pretty much it. And, but it was really uh, fun. It was really fun, though. Yeah, I thought we we usually had a pretty good time with those. <laughs> we had a great time. Sam would sit there and just smoke an entire joint to his head. I would stare couple at him. Them, probably. A couple of them, yeah. I would stare at him knowing that if I took one <laughs> hit of that, my mind would spin off the side of the planet and I would become some sort of combination of, like, I don't know. I'd become, like, a Che Guevara on PCP-type character. <laughs> Um, and Sam would just be the same. Like, so now, so for those of you guys who don't know, how would you describe what, what, what dabs are? Uh, like highly concentrated marijuana that you, um, they come in this like kind of sticky gum like consistency and you just like break off a little piece and, um, you basically smoke it out of a bong, but it's a special, bong that has like a quartz piece because you have to superheat it with a torch to get it to the right temperature um <laughs> you see like, that guys this is one of america's best journalists <laughs> <laughs> but, but but to put it into perspective if you if you were to get a, a sack of weed you know the flower that has about you know 20 15 to 20 25 percent thc content thc the the ingredient that makes you go crazy in weed uh i'm a cbd exclusive man at this point but go ahead cbd the stuff that doesn't do anything uh (laughs) hey there's a billion dollar market capitalization on that not doing that's true and it wouldn't be the first time that there's been a billion dollar market capitalization on something that doesn't do anything but uh 
Um, I will say, but dabs have like a, a 90% THC content. So we're talking massive difference in uh, psychoactive effects. So now when you do this, do you, does it fuck you up? Do you get like couch lock? Do you get yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you don't like do that before you do like your morning show. Uh. Like, I'll sometimes smoke some uh, before the morning show. So, all right, well, okay. So the morning show is no longer a morning show since we've gone into lockdown, pandemic lockdown. Um, we've had to pre-record the show the night before uh, each day, each Thursday morning. Before that, the show was live on Thursday mornings, in which case I wouldn't have done a dab at six in the morning. <laughs> that's a little too much. That's a little much even for me. But uh, yeah, uh, so I don't know. The show's recorded at night. Um, I don't know. Depends how I'm feeling. But usually within a couple hours of recording the show, I won't do a dab. No. <laughs> okay. But you could smoke a few joints yeah. and still do your news reports. Uh, I usually don't do it right beforehand, but, um, you know, it's like a cup of coffee. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, so that works for you. Do you feel like it's, do you feel like it's medicinal for you or it's just recreational for you? A combination? It's just maintenance. Is it something that you would be like, oh, I'd prefer not to do this. I kind of feel like I, I need this now. Uh, I don't consider it medicinal. Um, although it might on a subconscious level be medicinal. Um, I think it's just, uh, you know, working at home and, um, just looking up, doing research and, and writing, uh, I just smoke some weed. <laughs> it, like, what else am I going to do? <laughs> I do maybe I'm bored. Maybe that is some sort of like, that's where the subconscious level, maybe it's something like, maybe I should examine why I'm so bored as I'm doing work, but, um, or, or maybe it just works for you, you know? Yeah. And I think the other thing is, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll smoke some weed to like, get me going, like, you know, get a good sativa going at like, it'll get you up. I don't drink coffee. I don't do anything like that. So, you know, I'll, I'll smoke some weed to get going some days. And, once you do that, you have to sort of maintain it. So okay, you or else smoke. you get, or yeah, else you, you kind of get a crash. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. All right. So everybody, Sam has a very, very, very healthy marijuana habit. I mean, it's not that different from like a typical writer. I mean, you know, uh, you you uh, you're not involved in interacting with uh, uh, that many people. I mean, obviously if I'm like interviewing someone, I do not, I, I, I don't smoke weed. Um, but when I'm just kind of like writing, I, I find like it helps the process a little bit. Yeah. I, uh, no, I, I honestly, I, I fully support you in that, that it works for you. I think I still, and I've gotten over, I have these, like, I guess I have these little pangs, of, it's the saddest type of jealousy, but of jealousy that I can't just recreationally smoke. And I've talked about this on episodes of Take Your Pill Psychopath, that when I never want to smoke it really until I become hypomanic and manic, and then something clicks in my brain where I like crave it. And I, I try to kind of completely just orient my entire life around smoking it, right? Like mm -hmm. have, okay, so I know that I can't remember everything about it, but like I know that there's been some times that I've been manic around you. One thing that that sticks in my head 
was a night after a taping of Redacted. I don't think at that point that you were on the show anymore, but I kind of like told you, I asked if I could come over to your place and you were cool with that. And I did, but then I brought like a car full of Redacted Tonight fans with me to your house at like 1030 at night or so or 11 on a, on a weekday. And I don't think you knew they were coming over. And I obviously uh, didn't because you didn't tell me. (laughs) It was a surprise, you know, I don't know if in my mind it was like a surprise or if I was like, oh, he made me maybe he wouldn't be cool with it. I like to think that I thought it was a surprise. Um, But have I basically I want to hear from your perspective what that night on what happened that night, because then I remember I was around one of your friends. He came back. It was like it was a it was a fucked up night. Um, But I find for me, it's kind of like healing. To, even if it's uncomfortable to kind of hear about this stuff. Um, so what do you remember from that night? Um, I think, like, I honestly don't remember that much about the night. So That's maybe that thing makes I you keep, feel a little bit better. In a way it does. That's one thing I keep finding are things that are little, like, scars on my psyche that I feel embarrassed about. Not always, but a lot of times, even after a time has passed or whatever, and I bring them up to friends Sometimes they don't remember them at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I really um, think is a lesson for yeah. everybody. No, I definitely remember it, but not that much. Um, but uh, I think I do remember being um, being annoyed because it was late and I wanted to go to bed because I'm kind of early. I go to bed early and wake up early. It's true. Um, and Sam is an early bird. And if you're ever going to like work out with him in the morning, <laughs> I knew you were going to this. I knew you were going to bring this up. You always do. Well, I don't think it's you always because... cast me as this fucking fascist when it comes to like <laughs> making sure you're on time for the gym. Let me let me frame. It. Here's the thing, because listen, this is why I like to frame it like this, because you're totally in the right. But I like to twist it around to make you look like a fucking Mussolini about it. Guys. We, me and Sam tried to work out in the mornings before work. I think we did it for about two weeks. And Sam would pick me up in one of those smart cars, one of those little cars that he would rent. And uh, and every once in a while, I would be like, I wouldn't be like waiting on the fucking curb. It would be like three fucking minutes while I was trying to get out there. And here's the thing. Sam is a fucking morning person. I'm not a fucking morning person. I try my fucking best. It was never like an active sort of like attempt at disrespect towards him. But that's how he took it to the point where all I would ask is on the way down the hill, we could just stop at this little convenience store so I could get a banana. Johnny needed a little bit of potassium post-workout, all right? He's not as young as he used to be. And just the visual fucking angst and anger and rage on Sam's fucking defined brow was just ridiculous. But anyway, the truth is he was kind enough to pick me up. (laughs) And I should have been ready when he did. And that's really pretty much what it is. But anyway, what do you remember from that night? (laughs) So, yeah, I think it was like... um. Yeah, I think we I was just up smoking weed and I think we had talked about you coming over to hang out throughout the night and you were had just kind of been like touch and go about it because you were off, you know, you were partying, man. You were post show partying. Yeah. And uh, I think it was like late at night and um, um, I think you reached out to me and if I'm misremembering any of this, let me know. But uh I think I think I like I I said something like, yeah, you're welcome to come over and like hang out and smoke some weed for a little bit, like getting the impression across that it was late. You know, nothing's really going on. 
you're like, yeah, I'm going to come over. So uh, I was like, all right, fine. Which I wasn't, I'm like, I'm down to hang We can hang out, whatever. And like, I can also just go to bed when you're around too. And you'll, you know, whatever you'll hang out with Nate or whoever. Um, yeah. And then you showed up with a shit ton of people. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I, I just remember being, uh, being annoyed by that. <laughs> and then I got the vibe. I got the vibe. And I know you, you earlier said that like, you'd like to think that, that uh i forgot how you characterized it but uh i got the vibe that you knew you were doing something fucked up but wanted to do it anyways to see what would happen (laughs) it's quite possible and i want to say that i'm sorry about that well you know don't worry about it at all don't worry about it at all And, and i and i don't want you to spend another minute worrying about it okay well at some point i have to connect with sam knight about something because like more recently when i was really mad sam knight is uh is sam Sachs' uh a district sentinel partner uh i heard about this story (laughs) and also a great journalist uh and i can't remember everything about this but who was he with he was with a couple other people he was with uh adam johnson and somebody else uh, Adam Johnson and um, uh, Don Dante Stallworth, the football okay. player, former football player. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, holy shit! I was. That's amazing. Um. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Okay. I'm gonna have to hear this story. We're gonna have to. I got to. I feel like I have to hear this story from. You should Sam. Have, yeah. You should have Sam Knight on the show to, one day. Yeah, and then we'll talk about that. So anyway, that story is uh is that was that was pretty intense where i was ranting and raving in downtown dc screaming got kicked out of a bar was like throwing bottles across the street all because i was upset about something geopolitically like the underpinnings of it for me sam is always some sort of frustrated like idealistic hail mary attempt to kind of right some sort of contemporary political or social wrong <laughs> Like I just become this fucking like you are Atlas with, yeah. you know, yeah, with, the, with you, you believe that the world is is hanging on uh, your righteous decision and actions. And uh, you can't believe that <laughs> you'll beat yourself up. Yeah, it comes from it comes from a place of love, you know, um, yeah. I was but, at uh, the, I was at the bar that night. I, I guess I had left right before you arrived. Yeah, because I remember when I was when I was there and also the dude that was there, he, he way back in the day, he worked for uh, or he he worked for uh, human rights, uh, human rights, not foundation. I don't know, but he or he he spoke out against them or something like that. He lived in that communist house in uh, D.C. Oh, um, I know who you're talking about. I don't remember his name, though. Yeah, he's yeah. OK, but anyway, uh, he um, so, yeah, that. But let's OK, so. Sam Sachs, you guys, great journalist, no overt uh, mental illness to fucking speak of. Well, it's nice, you know. We at least un- let's just let's just say undiagnosed. And to be to be fair, like I uh, I, I haven't been to a therapist, and I, I'm not saying this like to brag or anything. I would actually like to regularly go to a therapist, but our healthcare system makes it fairly difficult, especially for people. Uh, independent journalists who don't get like employer provided health insurance or anything. But um, like, I haven't been to a therapist since I was like a child and brought there after my parents divorced to like, see if how I'm handling it. So uh, that's, you know, 
<laughs> yeah, no, dude, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to pressure you into <laughs> declaring some sort of mental health issue. What I'm saying is this is good. Like we need there's normies out there, you know, like yeah. we need some normies. And I don't say that like you're some sort of norm core human being because you're not. You're an incredibly fun, interesting, dynamic, introspective, thought out, smart, you know, like fucking hard hitting real journalist who's, you know, covered some really, really important shit. Um, but, uh, you know, you're just a fucking you're just a fucking normie, dude. Yeah, I'm a normie. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, okay, so all right, let's 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 do this, man. Um so uh where do you let's see, what do you what do you want to what do you want to start with? One thing, okay, so some of the some of the segments that you that you uh that you did on redacted, they were so good because you were so informed and something that always like I always like didn't like that I always thought was so awesome and amazing about you was like with no actual like I guess professional comedy chops, like not being a comedian how funny you were with those scripts and how funny and natural your kind of delivery and comedic timing has always been is like truly a fucking gift that other comedians would fucking die for. So I just want you to be aware of how, how spectacular that is, Sam. Well, uh, again, thank you, John. And uh, I was president of my high school drama club, so I wouldn't say it's completely natural. I went through extensive high school training to uh, get to where I am today. Well, that explains it. That clearly explains <laughs> it all. But there's some there's some of your segments, and I used to love for whatever reason. At one point, like all of your uh, redacted videos are still on YouTube, but for a long yeah. time, all the correspondents uh, had uh, their own playlists, even correspondents who had left the show. But then one day, I noticed that those playlists sort of got removed from within like within the playlist section of YouTube and it always I found that always annoying because I was like oh I always like to be able to go back and look at the other correspondent segments I always liked you know all your section because the segments were so good and interesting and informative and one a couple that always stuck in my mind um uh, was uh, was the one about the, the one that you explained about the U.S. Post Postal Service because this you did you did this segment probably like five years ago but it's still relevant today and it's still a part of the picture that's not being talked about as uh, as you know we're hearing on the news and there's this left right debate about if we should fucking privatize the post office and let it fucking go you know end or whatever it's crazy something that predates the fucking Constitution. Um, that one, so I wanted to talk about that, but then before I forget, the other one I thought was so interesting, what you covered about uh, Aero TV and about how that was like the free, kind of free cable in the sky and how like that was basically that that Supreme Court decision by only one vote that it ended up like that that their company went out of business and they were charging like $11 for internet, for internet and for cable access. Do you remember that one? That one's a deep cut, but yeah, the Supreme Court pretty much killed that company, yeah. <laughs> and then cut to like a year later, like uh, Sling TV is a thing, right? Which is essentially kind of the same thing? Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that much it, about Sling, to be honest. But, but, but uh, that is a deep cut, right? Yeah, that is a deep cut. That's like, guys sure. listening at home, as I was saying that, I saw <laughs> Sam like rubbing his fingers on his temple trying to like pull that one out. But anyway, you can okay. Like, when we get yeah. to that, you can explain how it's I, like it's all supposed to be free, right? It's just in the fucking air. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, a lot of the, the the channels use a lot of public infrastructure, and the deal was that like you have to give it away for free. But you know, times have changed, and now they're all converting to digital. 
and um, but the free airwaves are still out there. So like if you had the right antenna, you could you could still scoop it up. Um, and yeah, a company tried to just get a bunch of antennas around to scoop it all up and then sell that to people. Um, I really don't remember the specifics of the case though on how like it like it was it was shot down. I mean, we're talking a decade ago here, John. <laughs> Wasn't a decade? Eight, eight years ago. Sorry. What is it? Seven years ago, maybe? Oh, six. Five to six. Yeah. Well. Six. I don't know. Let's talk about the post office. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, the one thing I remember. We'll talk about the post office. Absolutely. The one thing I remember was interesting. Was it was that that it was that five four decision and um and uh. Scalia was still alive at the time, and Scalia was actually in the dissent saying that a similar case came before him uh, some decades ago concerning the VCR and how the VCR almost got shut down for copyright infringement, but the vote went the other way, 5-4. And it was the same companies, the cable companies, who were the same people saying, no, 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 we can't have this thing. And so we were one vote away from getting fucking free, cheap fucking television. But I guess you're right, because if digital, it doesn't even really matter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sounds like you know more about this than I do at this point. <laughs> it's possible I watched the video three years ago. I don't know. But um, all right, let's talk about the post office because people are saying I, it's so crazy how like there's people's mentality in this country is like, yeah, you know what? If the post office is so bankrupt and inefficient, let's just fucking let it go and privatize it. We got UPS and FedEx. Who needs it? I mean, fuck. It's like the fucking post office. Like what sort of character identity culture is left in America? Sam, let me know what's going on with this. Um, so since that report, uh, the post office is in even worse shape. Uh, the situation's gotten even more dire, but the essential struggle here is an attempt to privatize mail delivery in this country. Um, you've had this, uh, this semi-public, semi-private institution, the post office, that's existed, uh, for, as you said, uh, as long as the country, longer than the country's existed. And uh, it's operated as an autonomous entity. That's, uh, it's not a, a government, um, I mean, it's a, it's a government-sponsored program, but it's not government-funded. Your taxpayer dollars don't go to the post office. They uh, fund themselves through selling stamps and selling other mailing products. So it's been able to be self-sufficient forever, delivering quality product to where for, I guess it's now 50 cents. I don't even, I'm, I'm not even sure how much it is now to mail a letter across the country to whoever. I mean, you can't, I mean, what can you do for 50, 60 cents? Like nothing, but you can mail a letter all the way across the country with it. Um, how much is that letter going to cost to mail to from I live in DC, if I wanted to mail it to Alaska, how much is that going to cost if FedEx does it or if UPS does it moving on, moving forward? And yet people are going to be like emails, but what if you want to draw a nice picture and send it or something like that? So um, there is a massive amount of money to be made, though, in logistics, in this sort of delivery that's happening. So the key was if you could somehow kill the post office, kill it off, then Somebody has to do deliveries in this country and FedEx, UPS jump in the hole there and they can make tons of money. They jump in the void and make tons of money off of it. So they got Congress uh, in 2006 to pass a law called like the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act. 
some bullshit name as legislation is usually called. And uh, the law required the post office to pre-fund retiree health benefits 75 years into the future. So they had to create a fund. It, it, it forced the post office to create this uh, rainy day fund to pay out health benefits for workers that hadn't been born yet. How crazy is that? Like, it's uh, like, that's, it sounds fucking, that sounds like, it sounds like a comical, you know? Yeah. Well, it sounds crazy because no other business or government agency or anything has ever thought about doing that or been required to do anything like that. So to meet those requirements, suddenly the post office had to begin setting aside $5 billion every single year out of their operating budget, $5 billion with a B every year, to put toward this retiree benefit health plan. And as soon as that started happening, suddenly the post office went into the red because they couldn't afford to do that. Um, they were self-sufficient, but they're not trying to pay out massive bonuses to people and do all this thing. They're not trying to make a massive profit. You know, They have pretty narrow margins as is. So when you suddenly put a $5 billion liability onto them, things can go haywire pretty quick. Uh, on top of that, it, there is the internet and the fact that mail delivery in general is down. People aren't sending as much letters and they're sending more packages, um, which that has kept the post office a little bit afloat is delivering packages. But now you have uh, companies like Amazon, you know, taking over much of the e-commerce industry. And what you've seen by Amazon recently is them developing their own logistics and delivery services to where most Amazon packages nowadays are not delivered by the postal service or any other delivery. They're delivered by in-house Amazon people. Um, so uh, you've had a lot of headwinds already facing the post office financially, throw in this $5 billion liability, and things can start spiraling out of control really fast, which is exactly what uh, private interests and people who want to privatize uh, public services and public goods want to happen. So it's worked out pretty well for them. And it, the, the important thing to remember is it can easily be solved. To, you can remove this liability. Congress could pass a law removing this liability. And you could allow the post office to engage in selling other sorts of products and engaging in other sorts of activities. Right now, it's illegal for the post office to do anything else, to sell any other products that aren't specifically related to mail delivery. And Congress required that because they don't want the post office to compete with private entities. And, and Amazon's allowed to sell everything <laughs> and they're allowed to yeah. set up their own uh, logistics and distribution yeah. and shipping. I mean, so this this law was completely put in place in uh, in bad faith to undermine the uh, the solvency of the post office. And how come it's not ever talked about in the in the in the political uh, discourse about it? Why? Why is nobody really in the political divide uh, bringing it up? Because nobody gives a shit about the post office. I think the, 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 like for the, for the most part, people, people don't use the post office as much as they used to. And when people do, especially over the last 15 years, as the post office has had to deal with this new liability and face these financial hardships, they've had to lay people off. 
Um, they've had to uh, operate on skeleton crews. So when you go to the post office, there's only one person working there or two people working there. So you have a long line and then suddenly people are like, oh, well, this fucking sucks. The post office, they don't know what the hell they're doing. So they don't care if they hear news about the post office dying. Um, that's that's probably right. And, you know, when this law was passed, it was passed by voice vote. There was not even a recorded vote. It was passed majority. Like the same way that Congress usually passes uh, post office naming bills, they passed a bill to destroy the post office. Uh, so it's hard to get any accountability on like the lawmakers involved with it. We do know that that at around the same time you had um, and corporate lobbying groups have gotten a lot better about this because they used to operate right out in the open with groups like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, where they wrote model legislation and then handed it off to lawmakers at a state level and even at a federal level. And we're like, here, go pass this for us. And they go and pass it for them. Um, there is there was model legislation out of ALEC that was very similar to the uh, Postal Accountability Enhancement Act. Um, I might have like the the two words mixed up in there. It might be postal enhancement and accountability, whatever. But <laughs> fair enough, uh, dude. Yeah, but but at the end of the day, um, the the best way to fix the post office is to let the post office get involved in banking. Let postal banking has been something that uh, used to exist uh, in the country. Um, and should exist again for people. There's there's a massive underbanked population, people who don't have checking accounts and savings accounts. Uh, banks right now charge fees and try and skim as much off the top as they can on people who do have those sort of accounts. Let the yeah, and office. so many people are you know un underserved in banking, and they have to go to the kind of payday loan world and that whole exactly. You know, let very, the, let very the post office get involved in these these sort of uh, industries. They'll offer fairer rates. You won't have uh, CEOs trying to make massive profits off of it, uh, consider it a public good. Banking should be a public good. In the post office, you have this, it could also be like the, the epicenter for voting. I mean, we need to probably, uh, not probably, but we're definitely going to have to enhance our capabilities for mail-in voting up in this next election because uh, you're probably not going to have a, a COVID-19 cure by November. And you're probably going to have the virus return, if not in the next couple of weeks, now that states have already started reopening too soon, uh, definitely by then. So, um, you know, that's a whole nother issue, the fight. And you can see Republicans don't want to do that because mail-in voting will actually uh, increase voter turnout. It'll be a lot easier for people to vote. So, um, you know, allow the post office to uh, be this new hub for mail-in voting and for public banking. And you can really revive something that is very important to the country. You have this network that connects everybody all across the country, from urban areas to rural areas. Uh, you have kiosks and offices and vehicle fleets that, why just get rid of all that? You can't just, you, that, that is an, a remarkable achievement that's been built up that's about to die in the next few months uh, if these people get their way. And it's just, it's a shame. It is a shame, and and I hate that it's just used as like a as like a a talking point for, you know, as like an excuse. It's like, oh, that's just that's just big government. Where, without question, advocates for say privatization uh, 
you know, passed a bad faith law in order to frame things as such that it is just like framing it as a bloated sort of entity when in reality it got it got its knees chopped off years ago. And now it's just being pushed up, you know, beyond the brink. And I think it's really, really sad. And I think, again, because people don't understand this. And the only reason I know about this is because of a report you did a number of years ago. I'm not saying I have my finger on the pulse of everything, but I like to stay informed as best I can. And I think a lot of people who do like to stay informed wouldn't even necessarily know about this because it's such a it's such a buried thing. Well, in general, the media is extremely lazy. So uh, if you're presented with two narratives as to why the post office is in a lot of trouble, and I say, well, mail volume is declining because people are sending email, and you're like, oh, well, it makes complete sense. And that's it. You don't need to know anymore. Post office is a relic. We now live in the digital age. You're not sending letters. We're sending emails. We don't need the post office. Whereas if I say, well, actually, there was this very obscure 2006 law that was passed uh, by voice vote that required the post office to pre-fund retiree health benefits 75 years into the future, which created this uh, multi-billion dollar liability, which has put a lot of stress on postal budgets. The, the media is like, well, we only really have 15 seconds to cover this story. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't tweet that shit. <laughs> Um, wow. But I mean, I am because, you know, let's also face it. The media is 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 run by capitalists, the same sort of people who are trying to privatize the post office. So there are mutual interests here in sort of not telling the full story of what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and speaking speaking of that, and you brought up the banks and the idea of the post office working as as a banking option for the under underserved. Can we talk about the banks in broader? Can we talk about these uh, these COVID-19 uh, bailouts and the bad faith that those have been uh, been happening in? And because the thing is this, it's like I've been I'm doing fine now, uh, Sam. But a few weeks ago, I was kind of spinning out where I wasn't quite hypomanic, but I was like a little I was getting there. Like I really had to make sure to employ all of the tools in my mental health you know, bag in order to kind of stay well. And I'm really grateful that I was able to weather the storm. But one thing that really got me so fired up is this distraction that's happening right now, how angry the, uh, you know, just general public left and right are at each other in the country while these bailouts are happening. Uh, and so much more money is being, is being moved upward. There's such a further upward shift of resources and money. And we're getting our little breadcrumbs of our $1,200 or whatever, unemployment benefits and things like that. And how Americans right now, we don't even have the bandwidth to stand together to rail against that. or We don't even know it's happening. And I'm so tired of watching these commercials on TV of all of these big businesses telling us how they're there for us and they care about us and they're giving us 15% off our car insurance for three months. And I know psychos, <laughs> I've said this on other episodes of the podcast, but basically it got me so, so fucking angry that I was like really almost spinning out. But the truth is from what I've looked at, I don't know too much yet of, or I can't remember the particulars. Can you kind of talk about what you know about what's happening? Because some people claim that this is even more of an egregious uh, type of uh, bailout and redistribution of wealth than even the 2008 bailouts. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's way bigger. Um, so multiple things have been done to, uh, help corporate America and help wall street 
basically, uh, I, I think that the way I like to look at it is the general concerted effort to make the line go up, and that line being the stock market line, which, of course, the stock market line definitely does not reflect the actual health of the economy, uh, but it does reflect the financial health of the capitalist class and the elites and corporate America in this country. Um, and so you've seen uh, ever since this crisis started unfolding in February and in March, just all hands on deck, turn the money printer on effort by the Federal Reserve and Congress to make the line go up. And that's uh, been behind the scenes and stuff that you only read about like the financial press, where the Federal Reserve is just loaning massive amounts of money to uh, banks and other major financial institutions and corporations to keep them afloat, where they're just printing money. They're just pressing, they're just moving money into bank accounts, uh, into major bank accounts to pressing enter. It, like stuff that we've been conditioned to believe is impossible to be applied to working class people because, oh, inflation or, oh, we got debt, da da da. Um, they're doing it right now to the tune of trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars to where uh, you have a situation where you have 40 million people who've lost their job in the last month or so, which has never happened before in this country's history. You look at graphic representations of unemployment and you've never seen anything like it. Uh, go back to 1929, go back to 2008. They look like little tiny anthills compared to the mountain of what we're facing and the speed at which what we're facing here. So uh, it, a completely unprecedented crisis in terms of unemployment, uh, death, and people struggling. And yet the market has made a remarkable comeback since those first few weeks when this happened, which obviously everybody was caught off guard. So the market tanks initially. Uh, but ever since then, once, once the money printer got turned on, the market has improved significantly and everybody else has had to rely on action from Congress. And so far what Congress has done, uh, they've added even more uh, ammo to the corporate bailouts by codifying a lot of this stuff and uh, telling the Fed, hey, here's um, like a trillion dollars and use this money to leverage four trillion dollars in loans to major companies that need it. So we've seen that form of bailout. And then you saw this uh, payroll protection program, the PPP, which is was billed as a, a small business loan program to keep you know, your favorite bar, your local restaurant, uh, the barbershop, keep them in, in business during this. Since, hey, they have to shut down by state, a lot of state orders. Uh, they have employees. Let's find some way to keep them open just even though they have to keep their doors closed and let's find some way to keep their employees paid. So the deal was, hey, if you're a small business and you promise, uh, well, it, you don't even have to promise. If you're a small business, you can apply for this loan up to $10 million. Uh, and it's only at a 1% interest rate, which is an extremely good loan. Uh, those sort of loans are you and I can't access. Um, and if you end up keeping people on your payroll, if you don't lay anybody off, then you don't even have to pay it back. Here's just money, which uh, is uh, 
could be a good idea if implemented correctly. For example, in Europe, what they're doing uh, in a lot of countries in Europe is they're just directly giving money to businesses that need it to then pay workers. So businesses are like, here's our payroll. And the government's like, okay, here's the money to cover your payroll. Or here's 80% of the money to cover your payroll. And then the money goes straight to workers. Uh, here we designed it where the money is going to go to banks. And then the banks are going to give loans to businesses. So we're going to trust the banks to administer this rather than the government to administer this. So what the banks did is they administered it to the firms that they're most closely aligned with, which aren't necessarily small businesses. Um, in many cases, you had very large businesses getting uh, these loans. And on top of that, the banks got 10% off every loan. They got their cut for administering it, fees and everything like that. So if you take a, you know, a, a $500 billion fucking program, the banks are going to get $50 billion off of it just administering the program. Um, Holy so shit. Huge, didn't a, like, a didn't like waste did, there. Yeah. Didn't Shake Shack get like $10 million and, and then they had to give they gave it back because they got so much shit for it or something? Yeah, a lot of companies uh, give, and there's, there is no, it's not really public. So like people had to discover this stuff through like looking through financial statements and these banks being like, oh, we got this in, or in these companies being like, we got this infusion. Um, over time, we'll know more and more about which companies got these funds. Um, the Los Angeles Lakers got uh, these funds. The, the Lakers are considered the most profitable sports franchise in the world. One of them, uh, they somehow got a couple million dollars in small business loans. Ruth Chris Steakhouse got uh, this funding. Um, so now everybody, make no mistake. Listen, this is this is our tax money in part. This is our tax money, and this is printed Fed money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a combination of it's a, well, everything's printed. So yeah, yeah. So. Um, that, that's essentially it. And that, that's going through the banks to operate as a middleman for the banks to get a cut. And there's the thing about the thing for the banks is there's no risk involved here because you're not loaning out your money. <laughs> you're loaning out public money. <laughs> the public is financing this and then the banks are loaning it out, collecting a fee on it. This is crazy. And these and these and these small business loans uh, that program, it's the sort of thing where I've talked to friends of mine that work at some of these places or some of these business owners that they are too, some of them are even too nervous to use these loans because they don't know, uh, they don't know what sort of interest rates they're going to have to end up paying and stuff like that. And they're, and a lot of businesses can't even get access to them. There's a ton of bureaucracy yeah. around it. Yeah. Well, a lot of businesses can't get access because the banks are administering it and the banks gave the money first to the companies that are most well capitalized and closest to the bank. So a lot of, uh, you know, uh, minority and developing small businesses didn't have any access to this stuff. Also, there's a big question for a lot of these businesses about how long this is going to last. How long is uh, this pandemic? I mean, if this pandemic continues lasting or if they have to shut down again, uh, They've just added more debt to the, that they have to pay back in the long run by taking this loan. So maybe they don't want to take this loan because of how uncertain it is and whether or not they'll be in a position uh, to pay it back. A lot of times they're already in debt or facing debt. So, um, the, like I have, a, I mean, I, I I have a problem with just um, administering a program through 
bosses any through like small business bosses anyways and i'm sure there are a few good you know there are some good actors in the industry but uh, just because it's a small business doesn't mean that like there isn't a small business tyrant operating who's treating their workers like shit and the ppp allowed um allowed uh compensation up to a hundred thousand dollars so you probably had a lot of businesses bosses taking loans out to pay themselves and fine with them if they have to pay it back it's only one percent interest down the road some rich guy can he just got a five million dollar loan um at one percent that's tight so uh i i i think the best option is just give direct payments to people to stay the fuck at home until this is all over uh cancel all rent and cancel all mortgages and that way the business owner uh is being paid because they're human. So they're being paid to stay home like everybody else. They don't have to pay rent on their business. They don't have to pay a mortgage or whatever on their business. You just put that economy into hibernation essentially and just ensure that everybody's getting paid to go to the grocery store to to, to buy what they need to survive or whatever. Um, but we're not doing that. Instead, we're running it through banks and running it through businesses and hoping that eventually it trickles down to the vast majority of working class and unemployed people. And it's just not, it's just not getting, it's not trickling it's down. It's just absolutely not. And like you were saying, in certain European countries, they decided to go in a different direction. They decided to uh, essentially give the money directly to these business owners who then were required to pay 80% of workers' salaries while, you know, the business owners, uh, cost of doing business like their rent role and all that stuff their rent was taken care of yeah uh, and, and so in addition yeah and, and in addition to that in in canada in the uk in germany people individuals just citizens of those countries whether you're a worker or business owner or whoever are getting monthly payments monthly direct payments up to like two thousand dollars more than that in some cases we got one twelve hundred dollar payment at the beginning of this uh, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, I remember he was asked about it. Uh, is there going to be more aid to people? And he's like, well, you know, I think we got to see how that $1,200 lasts them. And the anchor's like, well, how long do you think $1,200 will last someone? He's like, mm, 10 weeks. <laughs> what the fuck, dude? And, you know, I think part of this, in a way, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want to say it's, it's what we deserve. I don't mean that. But I think the fact that we don't know what's going on, and yes, that is a failing of a lot of our of our journalism and the echo chambers of of our of our media and this sort of this crazy, crazy levels of of control. Like, you know, in America, they say like we don't have to assassinate our journalists just because if they if one that that speaks kind of outside the acceptable left right spectrum, that person's never going to get to any level of prominence or exposure without being sort of like uh, ridiculed and dismissed or kind of like uh, have their reputation, you know, battered into submission. But it's like I feel like in maybe I feel like in some of these European countries, Canada and stuff like that. It's like the people, and maybe I'm wrong, people having more of a sense of what's going on, they wouldn't allow for some sort of kind of further corporate snatch of wealth to happen during this sort of thing. Like, I feel like people in Berlin would be like, uh, you know, storming the Bundestag if this was happening. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, not, not to discount the austerity that is being imposed on people in Europe and in, in Canada. And um, I mean, it is still, uh, uh, these are still, um, I mean, maybe, honestly, maybe, yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe no, but you are, you are, no, you are right. No, no, you are right. I think, I think that, uh, these are, uh, generally more, uh, uh, revolutionary populations maybe is the word to where, um, or I, maybe the best way to put this is that they have, um, a, um, higher expectation in the social contract. Like they have, higher expectations of what of what of what should be public what the government offers them um then we in the u.s who have um since reagan have been conditioned in even before reagan uh to not expect anything from the government that in fact the government is uh evil uh incompetent and that uh you're on your own buy your own bootstraps go out and do it if you don't do it you're a loser and you're a whiner and that's that um, I think there is a much uh, more understanding of community in countries outside the U.S. Um, and in Europe, particularly, you could probably trace it back to the, the devastation of World War II and the need to come together and rebuild as as a reason for that. I mean, the NIH in, in the U.K. came after World War II as, hey, we're in this together coming to rebuild. So. The U.S. has never really had that sort of that sort of moment of 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 class consciousness, worker awakening, uh, public understanding of 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 how we should organize ourselves. And I think a frustration that I'm having is it seems like now this should really be that opportunity if people yeah, can no. realize what is happening and how. We are just we're we're yelling and screaming at each other. It's so it's I mean, it just goes back to that, you know, prisoners versus the guards mentality instead of realizing that there's this there's this other this other level that is really turning us against each other. And right now we should realize that when we need to come together as a country, that because our government has been completely taken over by these corporate interests, that we are living in what Sheldon Wallen called an inverted totalitarian state where the totalitarianism and the repression is coming from the ubiquitous corporate takeover of our fucking country. And I know people are just so tired of hearing the words corporation and mainstream media, like it just washes over us. But this is this example of how our country is dealing with this pandemic so, so, so poorly uh, is a product of that. And I really wish we could have that class consciousness and that that sort of revolutionary awakening right now. And, you know, Johnny's pretty upset that it's not happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was I I was optimistic at the beginning of this that and I still am a little bit optimistic. We have seen uh, more wildcat strikes and labor actions across the country uh, in the last few months than we've seen really any time in my lifetime. Um, just the wave of it happening. You've seen uh, rent strikes um, across the country. And I've talked to th these organizers for the podcast and for Means Morning News, and they all say the same thing, that, you know, people involved in these actions are awakening to what's happening. There is a certain awakening happening at the at the worker level. So, um, yeah, I, I, I am optimistic 
that maybe, you know, the, the economy shut down not because the bosses couldn't come into work. It's because the workers couldn't come into work. Um, you know, you're getting really stark reminders of of how everything operates. So I I don't know how maybe I'm maybe I'm not as optimistic now as I was at the beginning of this because it does seem like the the, the, the powerful capitalist forces are just forcing us all back to work um, to make the line go back up. They don't they don't care how many people are going to die. Um, we we got to go back to work and people have to go. People do have to go back to work. And if the government's not going to give them money, if they're not going to if they're not going to get another twelve hundred dollar check, uh, if the unemployment benefits are going to run out soon and they probably will because Republicans in Congress don't have any intention of extending those uh enhanced unemployment benefits then what choice do people have they have to pay rent they have to feed their kids so they're going to go back to work regardless of of the risks that they face and even worse they're going to go back to work in an environment where a lot of these businesses have now shut down small businesses have not shut down so now the only employers in town are going to be like amazon walmart um these 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 kind of uber uh these these industries that have managed yeah these behemoths that have managed to survive the pandemic not only survive but gotten even bigger (laughs) okay okay can't like amazon and walmart just officially win capitalism and then we could just reset or something because this is fucking (laughs) ridiculous amazon's about to win the thing i mean i think amazon is beating out making walmart look like a fucking independent jeff bezos jeff bezos is the guy like he's he is he's gonna become a trillionaire (laughs) yeah i mean he'll probably be a trillionaire he's got his newspapers he's got his like he's he's investing in space so that that he and his billionaire class can eventually leave the earth once they've destroyed it. Like it's all in line. They've got the biggest company. They're going to have the post office. They're going to own logistics all over across the country. They uh, <laughs> their web hosting services. They've got CIA contracts. Um, See, that's the thing. People don't know that. People don't know that the Amazon like uh, c- cloud computing services that they have deals with all of the intelligence agencies, first starting off with the CIA. We're talking billions upon billions of dollars through all the cloud computing for the intelligence agencies, for the CIA. And uh, Jeff Bezos is the owner of, wait for it, the Washington Post. Hello, the political newspaper of record in our country that somehow still has this credibility. And I guarantee you that folks listening don't know that that's the case. And I don't even fucking blame you. I only know it because I happened to work on a political comedy show for fucking five years. And I'm just a comedian. I should not have this deep dive knowledge of this shit. But ultimately still, Sam, you're right. We have to be optimistic. And somehow I am because maybe it's just things aren't happening at the sort of speed with which I like. Maybe this sort of slow burn, uh, you know, awakening will happen when it happens. It's like my friend gave me this, this analogy that he heard of someone like uh, building, like growing a bamboo tree uh, and having to like kind of water it underground for like five years and not seeing anything. And then his, uh, you know, his neighbor always being like, why are you doing that? There's nothing there. And then one day after five years, like the thing shot up like 14 feet in like five days or something like that. And I thought that was an interesting metaphor. And it also made me feel better about some of my uh, how obscure some of my comedy is on the internet <laughs> and how proud of it I am. Yeah. Now, we got to do this. Now, I know that I think you only got about 15 minutes left. So there is yeah. 
there's something. Okay, so basically, why don't you? So okay, basically, while this you know this pandemic is happening and all of this sort of you know political fallout and situations connected to that. Guess what, guys? Like the world is still happening. Other political and social things are going on that, uh, you know, that are just completely under the radar now. This is the black pill, Sam. Can you uh, let us know about uh, about something gnarly that maybe is not on our radar? Uh, some gnarly stuff. Um, I mean, this might be on uh, some people's radar, but you might have remembered uh, last month when. Um, the oil market like went completely haywire. You remember that? The yeah, can price I say, of yeah. oil. Oh, yeah, ahead. the price of oil went down to negative thirty-six dollars a barrel. Yeah, and here's how much I don't get money in oil and stuff like that. I was like, okay, oil's going low, low, low. It's at twenty-eight dollars a barrel. Trump is pressuring uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia to make some sort of deal to pull back um, how much output they're going to do. That's probably going to make money go up for oil. So if I was like a soulless like monster, I would like invest in oil now at 28 because it's going to go up. But here's how much I don't know. Then it dips down to negative 36, which makes me think that they floated that as a thing to get like regular investors to think to do that. But then some sort of projection came out saying like, oh, usage is even less than we thought. Then it dipped down. So then some people could really sell short and make some money. But I don't know. Go ahead. Well, so the, the it wasn't actually the price of oil, the, the benchmark price, what it was is the, the, the oil futures contracts. So like, uh, this is probably, a, you know, a little wonky, but the, the basic part is that, you know, there, there are futures contracts that you, if, if you're like an airline company or something and you want to, and you have a budget, then you want to lock in what the price uh, that you're going to be spending on jet fuel is going to be. So what you do is you buy a contract for fuel delivery a month from now at this locked in price. So I'm going to spend you know, $30 per barrel of oil. I've got this locked in to be delivered a month from now when this contract is due. Um, so when the contract's due, I have to take delivery of this oil at $30 every barrel. Um, it's fine if only airline companies are involved in this market or people who are actually going to receive the oil, <laughs> people who need the oil. The problem is you get financial speculators who start buying oil contracts and then selling them uh, depending on what the price does. So you had uh, a situation where the global economy went into full on meltdown uh, nobody was there was no the, the demand for oil shrank considerably because people weren't driving their cars around, people weren't flying around, cruise ships weren't operating. Uh, so there just was zero demand, which means there was a ton of supply of oil. There wasn't the corresponding reduction in oil production that happened with the reduction in oil demand. So uh, the market was just flooded with oil, which meant that all the oil depots, the places where you store oil, became too full. There was no place to store the excess oil to where the price as that contract delivery came due and people realized they had to accept this oil but there was no place to, to sell the oil the price drastically declines to where suddenly you had to pay people 37 dollars to take the oil <laughs> like here find somewhere to store this oil for me there's just way too much fucking oil everywhere um so that was kind of responsible for the price so since then You've seen uh, 
some some dr pretty drastic actions to reduce the supply of oil. Well, first off, China has reopened their economy a little bit more because they've handled this virus a lot better than the rest of us. So the demand for oil has gone up a little bit, reducing the supply. But you also saw the U.S. government open up like the National Strategic Oil Reserve and tell all the oil company, U.S. oil companies, here, come store your oil here at this really ridiculously low price. This is a great deal for you. So it was kind of a bailout for the oil companies uh, in that way. Um, and now you have this uh, situation where uh, the oil companies have been saved. <laughs> like the, the, the latest future contract came due for this most recent month this week, and there wasn't a mad rush that caused the price to drop to negative 36. The price stayed around 20 to $30. Um, so things are pretty much back to normal after that crisis, thanks to some serious intervention uh, by the U.S. government to open up a lot of these, these oil supply reserves. Um, but w w we had an opportunity in the last month to like really kill off this industry that's going to destroy the world. Uh, like, we unfortunately had a bunch of like oil barons and dipshits in office like Trump that that ensured that we didn't take advantage of this opportunity. If you look at global CO2 emissions, um, they're going to drop significantly this year for the first time at the greatest rate ever since we've started pumping CO2 into the air. They're going to decline at the greatest rate ever. Uh, you can go and look at the rate of decline after the 2008 crash, because every time you have kind of a depression, it goes down because you have less economic activity. Um, you can look even after World War II, the massive drop off in fossil fuel burning uh, doesn't even compare to what we're going to see this year just by shutting down for like a month. Yeah, that's something nobody wants to talk about, you know, COVID-19. He's a real uh, environmentalist, you know. No, you're you're absolutely right. Is that is that, and, and that that's kind of the the larger point I was I was making is that the things we're doing during this pandemic, working from home, traveling a lot less, are all you know running factories at half capacity. They're all going to be absolutely necessary if we're going to stave off something far, far worse than this pandemic in the future. And that's uh, runaway climate change. And, and we even, had an opportunity here to pivot things, but instead we decided to bail out the uh, oil companies once again. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And even even shutting down the economy like we've done in order to truly do something about climate change, we'd have to do what we've been doing for the last two months at a sustained rate for the next 30 years. Is there any way to do that and maintain, obviously not our same consumption patterns, but like, and not a, I, but a quality of life that is, does not feel, I guess, I don't know, uh, restrictive and broken and fractured and demoralizing? I think absolutely. I mean, 100% in the sense that like, People working from home is not demoralizing and, 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 you know, fracturing. So we can do that. Easy. Any job that can be done from home, people should work from home. Reduce uh, transportation like that. Um, you know, we, we started by talking about the trillions of dollars that have gone to 
oil companies and banks and everything like that, you name it, the largest companies in the world, you know, give people a, a UBI or a job guarantee and detach, you know, labor from their life. And suddenly you drastically improve people's lives, even if you haven't, you know, necessarily given them uh, giant gas guzzling SUVs or, you know, large flat screen TVs. You've given them more free time and you've uh, given them health care and, you know, their basic essentials covered. Um, all these things can be done while, in fact, it, you need to do all these things um, to transition to an economy that is more sustainable uh, than the one we currently have right now. Um, and that's maybe a reason to be optimistic is because I think like the, the painful thing of all this isn't, I mean, it's, it's the fact that we can't, you know, hang out with each other and well, for some people, uh, <laughs> no, but well, but, yeah, but, you, I like, mean, you're a homebody. I'm a fucking stand up comedian. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean? Yeah. Like the social, a really, this, really important yeah, thing it, has been taken away from me. <laughs> right. Right. That, 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 that is, that is the bad thing. But like, uh, people having more free time is not the bad thing. You know, um, if people were, were, it's bad because people aren't getting paid like they should be to stay at home, but you could do that fairly easily. You can enact a universal basic income in the U S extremely easily. Um, and there's more than enough wealth to do it. Uh, and people are getting even richer off this pandemic. And that's a good place to start to find the money when we need it down the road after we overthrow these assholes. Yeah, exactly. Who the fuck? Somebody's getting rich right now. It's like, who the Jeff fuck Bezos. is to find that person? Because they are a fucking crook. Yeah, Jeff Bezos, at the very least, the very least, should be paying some sort of accelerated, considerably higher rate of, of tax based on the 100% extra profit. After, I mean, 100% after $10 million. Let's do that. that Nobody needs more than me. $10 million. Yeah. You probably even said it lower than that. But... Let's be reasonable. Let's be let's be reasonable with the with the millionaires out there. Ten million dollars, you can keep it. I mean, we'll we'll tax you at a progressive rate still, as we do now. But uh, every dollar after ten million dollars is going to be taxed at a hundred percent. That sounds good to me, dude. And if that sounds like wealth redistribution then let's fucking redistribute yeah. some of it because guess what money does not equal happiness but guess what having all of the money while a bunch of people are, cannot get by that equals a lot of unhappiness Absolutely. and it's just fucking ridiculous just all of you fucking super rich people just fucking take some fucking mushrooms or something just hang out with sam do some fucking dabs and just fucking open your mind and realize that your happiness is connected with the happiness of everybody else and it doesn't mean that you need to win capitalism, Jeff Bezos. I don't know what the fuck happened to you. Um, Sam, in the last I, I just, I just want to say one thing because I forgot to put the, the exclamation point on the oil story is that the latest thing right now is that now that the oil industry is saved, they can go about destroying the world. Uh, they want to do it at a much faster rate because they want to burn in the Arctic, in the Alaskan National Wildlife Refuge. They want to start drilling for oil there. This has been a legal for decades, but in the 2017 Trump tax cuts, they lifted the prohibition on it. So uh, now oil companies can go drill in the, uh, in, in, the, in the Arctic up there. The problem they're facing is that banks don't want to finance Arctic drilling projects for a variety of reasons. One, uh, it's bad PR and banks have gotten a, 
a little bit better at understanding public pressure from environmentalists. So they don't want to have their names directly attached to drilling projects. Uh, two, it's a risky uh, investment because we a lot of accidents happen up there. The weather's terrible. Uh, it's just naturally risky. The price of oil is so low, so it doesn't make the investments all that worth it. Lots of reasons why banks don't want to finance Arctic drilling projects right now. Although banks are financing oil companies and oil companies can use the money they're getting from banks and then devote that toward whatever they want to do. But banks don't want to be associated directly with Arctic drilling projects. So now you have Republicans flipping out, claiming that banks are discriminating against oil companies. Uh, this has been an ongoing uh, refrain over the last month to the point where this week you had the energy secretary, the U.S. Secretary of Energy, a guy named Dan Brulette. He's the guy who replaced Rick Perry as energy secretary. Uh, Dan Brulette accused banks of doing redlining against oil companies, claiming that oil companies in America are victims of redlining. Holy shit. Just okay. Now, real quick, you have to explain to everybody historically what redlining yeah, is. Redlining is basically uh, the racist practice that was institutionalized by banks and financial companies to deny loans and benefits to black and brown people. Uh, it was, you know, after uh, civil, during the civil rights era and beyond and before that, uh, banks would literally draw red lines around predominantly uh, minority neighborhoods and tell loan officials do not loan to people who have addresses in this area. Dude, this is some real Orwell shit all over the place, dude. Yeah. You know America, what? Want... The only place where you can be where banks can be racist <laughs> to oil companies. <laughs> Holy shit, dude. That. OK. On that note. Sam, this is I just thought of this would be fun to do as we wrap this up, because thank you. Thank you for this deep dive uh, explanation of these different stories. It kind of like has given me a better grasp of these things, which uh, which means a lot. So now I can better argue with my family members when it comes up, um, uh, which I actually try to avoid because, you know, I'll tell you one one downside of having a, um, a diagnosed mental illness is that if you're saying something that's politically divergent from your family members, they can just think that you're crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that must be rough. <laughs> they're the ones, though. Yeah, they're the that ones. That are crazy. <laughs> but do me a favor, if you can, just give it a try. Off the top of your head, just some headlines. What are some other stories that people don't know about? Perhaps Venezuela? Just like one line, like Venezuela, Venezuela uh, coup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a there was a private uh, defense mercenary group that tried to launch a coup in Venezuela with like 80 guys and got owned completely because the Associated Press reported that the coup was going to happen a few days before it actually happened. And the guy who uh, runs the security firm tweeted about the coup happening as it was happening. Uh, so these guys were busted. The main question is whether or not the Trump administration knew that this was going to happen, was in any way associated with it, probably wasn't associated with it, but definitely knew it was happening because uh, Jordan Goudreau, the guy who ran the security firm, actually was talking with people in Mike Pence's office trying to get funding and support for this coup to kidnap Maduro. That was the key. They were going to kidnap uh, Maduro, and they ended up getting caught by a group of Venezuelan fishermen. Um, and when did this happen? 
This happened at the beginning of the month. Um, and <laughs> it's you know, the fucking beginning of May. Yeah. And nobody. Yeah. Happened. It just, that's how crazy uh, it, it is. Failed, Ooh, it failed miserably. Attempt. It failed miserably. Um, the, the other interesting aspect is it's basically the privatization of coup services. Like usually this is stuff that's like, uh, embarked on by the government in CIA and claimed like Bay of Pigs style. Um, Instead, uh, this was done through a, a private company, some guy who's just trying to make a buck, apparently. Um, yeah, and he—he, he, I guess he—he he had a contract signed with uh, Juan Guaido, the opposition leader in Venezuela, the really pathetic dude who has declared himself the president of Venezuela and has actually a lot of the fucking Western world has also agreed and declared him the president of Venezuela, even though uh, he's a joke and. He's such a non-threat in Venezuela that Maduro just lets him continue to walk around after several failed coups. Yeah, he's not even in jail. No. You know what no. I mean? And he went to school in the States, and his like professor and mentor is a former head of the IMF, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like so on the nose that it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, um, something else listen, going on, uh, the... Uh, the uh, United States Senate is about to confirm a new uh, director of national intelligence. Um, and uh, this guy uh, is a QAnon guy. Um, he, uh, he follows a lot of QAnon uh, accounts on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, John Ratcliffe is his name. He's a Republican congressman. He was nominated by Trump to be the top spy in the country last year. Um, he withdrew his nomination because he had no qualifications and like surveillance or intelligence or anything behind beyond being just a dipshit Republican congressman. And then Trump nominated him again this year, renominated him again this year. And now he's about to be confirmed. Um, during his confirmation hearing, uh, he was basically asked his thoughts on torture. And he said, well, it's illegal. So and the senator was like, well, what if it wasn't illegal? And he was like, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, then it wouldn't be illegal. Yeah, I follow the law, so if it's not against the law, then... So no uh, moral compass whatsoever. Yeah, and then the last thing I'll just bring up real quick to keep an eye on, uh, people have probably seen in the news Trump firing the State Department Inspector General, Stephen Linick. Uh, a little bit more under the radar is that Linick was probing a $8 billion weapons deal to Saudi Arabia at the time he was fired. Um, this was uh, when the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, declared an emergency to force this weapons deal without Congress being able to block it, claiming that Iran was too much of a threat. We had to send all these weapons to Saudi Arabia. Um, the inspector general was looking into whether or not that was actually a threat, and he was fired. So, wow. Situation there. So, so you hear that? Psychos, everything is just going just just business great. as usual, dude. Business as usual. We're doing secret I, coups. We're funding the Saudis with weapons. I mean, it's all the same. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, dude, Sam, thank you so much for all of this this deep dive knowledge. Uh, yeah, I mean, for you guys listening at home, dude, we're not only fucking licking that black pill, we're fucking swallowing it. Sam, will you please? Because honestly, if you guys, people that are interested in this stuff, Really, the work that Sam has been doing for years now really, really is great. It's always an independent news source that I tell people about when people ask me uh, where to find stuff. So, Sam, can you please uh, let uh, the uh, the psychos know where they can find more of your work? 
Sure, we are, we are on all the uh, podcasting platforms, District Sentinel Radio. We have a, pretty much a daily podcast that comes out breaking down uh, the news coming out of Washington, D.C., federal policy. And then on Thursday mornings, uh, I do a show called Means Morning News on Means TV. It's a brand new uh, video streaming platform, an anti-capitalist video streaming platform. Uh, got a lot of cool movies um, some new shows that are unroll that are rolling out, including Means Morning News. Uh, check it out. I think it's it's ten dollars a month to subscribe, which I know, given the econ- economic meltdown, a lot of people don't have the means to subscribe to Means TV. Uh, if you want to subscribe uh, and you don't have the means, uh, let me know at Sam Sachs on Twitter. I can connect you with uh, the right people who can get you uh, in there for a, a discounted or free subscription. That's great. And that's at Sam Sachs, S-A-M-S-A-C-K-S. Uh, Sam, you're uh, you're wonderful, man. I'm so glad to reconnect with you. And let's uh, let's keep in touch, dude. It's always it's always so fun. We've had so much fun hanging out, you know, what I mean? over we, the years. We have. So. And I, I would I would really like to keep in touch, John. This has been uh, this has been a fun podcast. Uh, best of luck with it. Thanks, dude. I so appreciate you being on. And uh, yeah, thanks for being the first uh, guest on the Black Pill. I'm uh, I'm super psyched and appreciative. Uh, let's connect soon. All right. Yeah. All right. Bye, buddy. Bye bye. <laughs>